Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Jenna, and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Alrighty, welcome everybody. You're back for another episode of All the Hard Things. And today I am here with fellow mom um, and fellow OCD warrior, Mallory. So uh, I'll let her go into her own intro of, you know, what she's all about, her story and all that stuff. But just to let all of you listeners know, um, I'm super excited for this one. When Mallory reached out and told me her story, I was like, not only is this going to be so helpful for any mom out there who has struggled with uh, some of the things that Mallory has, like anorexia, OCD, she's going to get into all of that. Um, We'll get into so many different things, but I'm really excited to introduce you guys to Mallory. So I'm going to hand it off to Mallory now. Mallory, if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and your story. Yeah, so... My name is Mallory. I am a boy mama. I'm a pandemic mama. I'm a one and done mama. I am a military spouse. I have my bachelor's degree in economics. I am a certified personal trainer and nutritionist. I'm an eating disorder survivor, and I'm currently thriving in life despite having an OCD diagnosis. So my story could really be like this 10 part messy docu-series, but I will try to do the cliff notes version for the sake of time. (laughs) So there was a lot of trauma in my childhood due to being raised in a very dysfunctional home. This dysfunction was very much so generational habits that had been carried out through decades and ultimately repeated in my own family of origin. Growing up, I endured various forms of abuse, uh, neglect, and just pure chaos. There was no consistency in my childhood, which led me to very naturally feel out of control. The combination of environmental and genetic factors created that classic loaded gun theory where I ultimately turned to an eating disorder to cope. I was a young teen with really, you know, no instruction regarding healthy healthy coping mechanisms. So my eating disorder and the compulsions slash rituals that came along with it very much so served as a friend to me during that time. My eating disorder really came on pretty fast and furious, and I was diagnosed with anorexia in the early 2000s. I did require inpatient pediatric care 
due to how malnourished I was at the time. Although after a few months of care, I was discharged in a quote unquote healthy body, I do feel that the mental recovery practices of eating disorder treatment in the early 2000s were seriously lacking, which we can get get into. Um, When I returned home, I was thrown back into that dysfunctional environment that I mentioned before. It, It also didn't help, you know, that I was in the middle of puberty and high school and all the fun that comes along with that. So going back into that environment, I still did not have a toolbox of coping mechanisms that I so desperately needed. And although I maintained that quote unquote healthy body, I did quickly relapse back into compulsive behaviors and rituals to cope. Um, I spent years in what the eating disorder recovery community refers to as this quasi recovery before eventually experiencing genuine recovery that only came after I received proper diagnoses and treatment. So fast forward several years, I've moved out of said dysfunctional home and removed toxic people from my life. Um, A lot of bumps in the road, but I did make some great friends, graduated from university and met my now husband. So I had like a good solid seven, eight years of life recovered from anorexia and those various obsessions and compulsions really lied dormant in my body during that time. So in 2019, uh, very joyfully, I became pregnant. Pregnancy after recovering from anorexia certainly proved to be difficult My pregnancy was overall healthy, but I was diagnosed with a rare condition called hyperemesis gravidarum. I know it sounds like a Harry Potter spell, but basically it's a cute way of saying that I had morning sickness all day, every day. So I personally did not struggle with any bulimic tendencies in the depths of my eating disorder, but I found pregnancy to be very triggering in the way that I once again felt very out of control of my body. And like an eating disorder, I felt like a condition that I did not choose to have hijacked my entire life. Um, At this time in my life, I, I wasn't currently in therapy because I felt I was in a good place. I then quickly experienced these back-to-back really deeply distressing situations. So my husband was away military orders for an extended period of my pregnancy. I managed an entire household move to another duty station while he was away. We experienced the loss of our dog and my husband and I survived a terrorist attack while I was eight months pregnant. The terrorist attack really led me to feel like nothing was safe. Quickly after that, I started experiencing that old friend of intrusive thoughts and mild obsessive slash compulsive behavior. In, In my mind, I had made all of the best choices for my baby, even before getting pregnant. You know, I got an education, I got married, we were financially secure, 
we chose to live on base at, at our current duty station due to the enhanced security and the short commute for my husband. It was such a strange dichotomy to be heavily pregnant and nesting and endure that terrorist attack where multiple people died and know that even though I had made the best choices, ultimately nothing was in my control. And I felt like my baby's nest just wasn't safe. I really didn't have a ton of time to unpack that before it was time to give birth. There was also bigger elements to tackle as it was the start of 2020 and the pandemic was looming. I gave birth to my son and we didn't know his gender until he was born in February, 2020. And I honestly, I had a beautiful delivery and my initial postpartum experience was great. Breastfeeding went well, uh, healing went well. We all bonded quickly. My son started sleeping through the night at just five weeks old. Please nobody kill me. <laughs> um, in those first few weeks, I was really in absolute bliss. I wouldn't even say I experienced even baby blues. And I attribute a lot of that to the relief of no longer being pregnant. And I was definitely not mourning not being pregnant anymore. Also having no birth trauma and being able to successfully breastfeed. So I had my first postpartum checkup at two weeks postpartum and everything was going smoothly at the time. I was told to follow up at that traditional six week mark to clear me for regular activity. And before I was even six, week po six weeks postpartum, the pandemic was in full force and the world flipped on its head. You know, I, I knew that my world was going to change when I became a new mom, but it would have been helpful if the whole world didn't change along with it at that time. So I got this email one day that said my six-week appointment was just canceled. No explanation was given. No one contacted me at all. I thought it was weird until I was scrolling through one of those mom Facebook groups that I'm in and other women who had recently given birth, and this is all throughout the country, were asking if anyone's postpartum appointments had been canceled. And so many other new moms were commenting, saying, yes, mine was canceled, or, oh, I was never seen, or I just had a phone call appointment. And it made me realize that there was this absolutely ludicrous pivot with many OBGYNs at the beginning of the pandemic, where the only priority was women who were currently pregnant, which they absolutely should be a priority, but women who were freshly postpartum were not viewed as essential to see. I, I thought this was absolutely crazy. And at, after um, advocating for myself, and I was one of the lucky ones, I did ultimately get a scheduled six-week appointment to be seen. And when I entered the clinic for that appointment, I can't deny that the vibe was completely different. Um, everything felt really sterile and rushed. And again, like my care was not a priority since I was no longer pregnant. Um, I kind of got through that appointment and went on my merry way and I was managing well for a while. I attribute 
me managing well for several months, a lot to riding that wave of those breastfeeding hormones, oxytocin and prolactin. Those clearly played some type of role in keeping me calm. Um, this all changed when I decided to wean my son when he was seven months old. And even though I weaned him slowly, I experienced this huge post weaning adjustment in my hormones. Um, there's a ton of conversation around baby blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum anxiety, which is amazing. We need to be having those conversations, but I feel like no one is talking about mental health issues that can happen post weaning. Once I weaned my son, I completely hit a wall. The post weaning anxiety that I experienced on top of my history with PTSD and OCD manifested itself in the form of intrusive thoughts and chronic insomnia. I was researching post-weaning issues because I was kind of out of that period where it could be baby blues or postpartum, you know, depression because of the onset of when it started. And I came across a video on YouTube by Angela Lanter. I think she's in like the beauty community, but her symptoms that she was talking about post weaning were completely like copy and paste what I was experiencing. Um, I was shocked and I knew that this was a post weaning problem. The insomnia that I started dealing with was, was torture. I, I'm not joking when I say I had a few months span where I slept anywhere from zero to four hours a night. And that's not because my baby wasn't sleeping. He was, I was just laying at the foot of his crib, watching his chest rise up and down for hours, paranoid that he would stop breathing. Um, just like the depths of anorexia, when you are starved, you are naturally thrown into a terrible mental state. Sleep deprivation really acts the same way and only made me plummet worse. This catapulted me into a full-on OCD relapse with rituals and compulsions. And it's like all those dormant behaviors were suddenly awoken in my body. Um, funny enough, I did not relapse into eating disorder behaviors because a part of me knew that deep down on top of everything else I was dealing with, I did not need to deal with an eating disorder as well. After struggling for a few months and with the encouragement of my husband, I made an appointment with my OBGYN and I was ready to open up about everything. Just making that appointment brought me this huge sense of relief. You know, everyone tells you to just ask for help or don't be afraid to ask for help, et cetera. And I'm finally at the point where I've admitted I cannot manage this on my own and I need to ask for help and I'm going to get it. Well, not exactly. When I saw my OBGYN again, the vibe was even worse than before. So at the time, I didn't know if this vibe was due to the medical staff just being overwhelmed with all the pandemic-related drama, or if it was my own mind creating this alternate reality, but Essentially, my OBGYN's bedside manner was off and who I knew her to be felt very different. I expressed everything I was going through and I emphasized my disordered past. Um, 
all that was done was I was given that Edinburgh, I hope I'm saying that right, postpartum depression scale, which reflected almost none of my symptoms. And I left without much guidance other than in order to get blood work done. Um, A few days later, I got this automated message that the blood work results came back normal and everything was fine. I was not followed up with at all. Uh, I was really lost at this point, and I messaged my OBGYN and asked where to go from here. All she did was respond back and tell me to find a psychiatrist. And let me tell you, when you are in the trenches of a mental health crisis, there is nothing that takes more energy than calling around to a million psychiatrists in a pandemic attempting to get an appointment. I did muster a little bit of motivation and I tried to get an an appointment, but I was met met with like crazy long wait times, like six plus months and just voicemails that weren't returned. I just did not have the mental capacity to navigate that at that time. So I gave up. Um, A little bit later, a, a friend of mine that was also a patient of my OBGYN found out that between my two week checkup and sometime when I returned months later for my post weaning issues, my OBGYN had actually lost her son in a fatal accident. It, it feels so silly to express that hearing this was distressing for me because it's her story and her grief, and I have no place to speak on it. But essentially, my biggest fear in life came true for my OBGYN, and and it shook me to my core. And of course, the vibe was different in her office. It all made sense now. She returned to work just a few weeks after her son passed. And I felt a connection to her, obviously, you know, because she delivered my baby, but also because her son and my son share the same name and were born in the exact same hospital room. So after hearing that horrid news, I just could not bring myself to go back to her. I was almost embarrassed. You know, here she is dealing with this unimaginable loss and I'm sitting there complaining about how I can't sleep. Again, I, I mean, I can only express the deepest sympathy for her and her loss, but two truths can exist at the same time, and it doesn't change the reality that the lapse in care that I and so many other new moms experienced postpartum was unacceptable. So I continued to struggle and just hoping that my issues would go away. Things really hit a peak when our city was hit with a historic hurricane. The hurricane's intensity really caught everyone off guard. And the night it hit, I I experienced essentially just one long panic attack. You know, it goes without saying that I didn't sleep. The next day, we assessed the damage to our home. And keep in mind, this home has only held negative memories for me with pregnancy illness and pet loss and a terrorist attack, the onset, the onset of a pandemic, post-weaning issues, you know, an OCD relapse, insomnia, and now this hurricane. With the damage to our home, it wasn't safe for our baby to be in the home at that time. 
So we evacuated to our longtime friend's home about 40 miles away at another duty station. And we took a few days at their home to develop a plan. And my husband decided it was best for me and our baby to, ex to spend an extended amount of time away from our current duty station with, and go be with his family for a little bit. So he selflessly got me up at my in-law's house. And this is the first time they're getting to meet their grandson when he's eight months old. You know, and I, I expressed to them all the things that were going on. They really served as a place for me to get some help and rest. I'm absolutely forever grateful for them for providing me and my son a safe place to land after the hurricane. I didn't feel comfortable contacting my OBGYN for help or even for a referral, but I was of the mindset that I was not going to put my mental health on the back burner, even in a pandemic, and I was going to demand help. So in a leap of faith, I texted a family friend of mine who lived in the area that I was evacuated at. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner in kind of the maternity world. And I told her that I was struggling and she got me in the very next day. She stayed at her clinic late to see me and she didn't even bill my insurance. I mean, she was an absolute angel. She listened to me and we developed a plan to get me back on track. So I re-entered therapy to address some of that trauma. And I started a medication regimen to aid my symptoms. I did return to the duty station and I was able to successfully, you know, manage my mental health after a period of rest. One of the biggest contributors to me recovering from those back-to-back -back traumatic events was us moving to another new duty station. Now, I'm not saying that moving to a new geographical location will negate all of your problems. Trust me, I know they don't. But there was only so much healing I could do at a place where so much tragedy occurred. Um, other than the formal aspects of recovery, I've been exploring other forms of healing. I've been writing for over a year now, and I have a collection of several pieces of poetry and short stories. I do not personally identify as religious, but I'm getting much deeper into my spirituality and my yoga practice, my yoga practices. Um, although I have not personally struggled with addiction, I have decided to be sober by choice. I found that's the ideal way for me to experience the world. I've rekindled a few key relationships that were very meaningful to me in childhood. Um, one of them being my little boyfriend slash high school sweetheart. He was such a positive influence on me during the rough years of my eating disorder. You know, plenty of kids in middle school and high school just relished in the opportunity to be completely horrible to me. And he just wasn't, and he could have been because I was vulnerable at the time. Um, he's on his own healing journey for a separate issue, and I will support him in any way that I can on that. Another is one of my fellow eating disorder clinic patients. We were inpatient together when I was just 14 years old, and it's a small world now. Somehow we live in the same city. Her and I, we chat often. She's fully recovered, and she's doing her own work in the recovery space, I'm also in a great place with several family members, notably a few of my siblings. We're building relationships not based on that trauma bonding we had when we were younger. One of my sisters and I have, you know, very similar senses of humor, and I just love sending memes back and forth with her. 
my brother and I, we parent very similarly. I look up to him in a lot of ways. Um, you know, these siblings, we talk often and we travel to see each other. Lastly, through a friend of a friend, I was able to eventually hear from my OBGYN that lost her son. She had expressed to someone to tell me essentially that she's happy that I'm doing well now and to tell me that she's pregnant with a baby girl. So that was extremely great for me to hear. I was able to process that experience better knowing that in the end, she is on her own road to healing. Now we've been at our new duty station for about seven months. Uh, we're really settling in. My son is at a daycare that he loves. We're building a house. I'm exploring my passions. I'm going to start taking a pole dancing class. I'm just completely unhinged, basically. <laughs> and my husband got a vasectomy. So you and I are both parents of onlys and both boys and both February babies. Uh, the one and done choice is one I could talk about for days. I write about how in the absence of my trauma, I feel I could have multiple children. I don't want people to think that because I have one child, that means I don't like being a mother. That couldn't be farther from the truth. I'm simply at a happy capacity with my only, and, and my husband feels the same way. And I don't think we talk about being at capacity enough. I think this idea in our generation of hustle culture and constantly having to add on or level up is so counterproductive. My husband and I, we, we want to be as intentional parents as we can be. And having our only allows us the best of all worlds. You know, I can enjoy the benefits of parenting while also dedicating enough time to managing my mental health. As, as much as I wish I could be wiped of trauma, as much as I wish I had a village, as much as I wish I had functional parents to lean on, I don't, you know, that is reality. It just is. And to be brutally honest with you, the only reason I even considered a second child was out of fear, that deep, dark fear of if something were to happen to my son. And that fear smacked me right across the face when I heard my OBGYN lost her son. But in a way, it showed me that none of us are immune to that fear. Perhaps the fear of losing our children is the small, small price we pay for the amazing love story that we share with them. Also, a side note, I have had to grapple with the fears of something happening to my husband due to his job in the aviation world. And, and I don't have multiple husbands just lined up behind him. So in a funny way, it put my fear into perspective. I, I now know the healing work that I'm doing to break the cycle will take a lifetime. And if I leave this world, having only been a good wife, good mother and broken the cycle of dysfunction, then I feel I've lived a, a fulfilling life. I shared a few of my writing pieces with my therapist and she mentioned there, also, there were several of her patients that she felt would benefit from reading them. And after hearing how my writing helped others, I was inspired to anonymously uh, submit a piece of my writing to the Only You podcast, and it was selected to read on air. And the piece was also posted um, on the One and Done Facebook page, and the amount of positive feedback it received just blew me away. It was like 300 comments of other parents just in solidarity with me. So 
that that inspired me to get deeper into this space. I was able to get in touch with you. I started an Instagram so you and my literal other three followers <laughs> can see what I'm up to. I, you know, I'm not sure if anything will come of it, but I plan on using it as a way to share my story and writing and just connect with others in the same space. Basically, I'm pouring from a full cup now and it's just spilling over into love for others. And I'm really so thankful for the opportunity to speak on your podcast. And that's the Reader's Digest version of my story. So I'm open for any questions. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many different bullet points here. I started to take notes about all the things I wanted to come back to. And I was like, there's, there's no way we could just all day. We could sit here forever. Um, but one thing that really resonated with me and that I think so many other people, uh, could kind of need a dose of is especially after trauma, after, you know, a difficult time with adjusting to motherhood after OCD, after eating disorders or kind of any, or all of the above, you can get really down about like, is this ever going to get better? What does recovery look like? Um, I hear so many times as an OCD therapist and as someone who's kind of been through it, like, what does recovery look like? Can you ever cure OCD? Can you ever cure these issues? Um, am I ever going to get rid of these things? And I would love to hear your elaboration on what recovery looks like for you, because like you said, you're thriving. You have had all these, uh, difficult experiences and, you also said that this is a lifelong process that you are going to have to continue to work on these things, but you can do that and still thrive. So I would love for you to elaborate on that. I would say that I had to come to a place where I needed to choose recovery. And I chose recovery once I stepped back and saw that everyone else was living their, their lives. You know, if we look at our lives, as this pie chart, my disorder and compulsions took up the majority of it. And I so desperately wanted to end that. So with appropriate exposure and response prevention therapy, I was able to prove to myself that my body wasn't broken and ultimately that I wasn't broken. I released myself from so much shame and, and I got through my days with a lot of mantras, but Breaking these compulsions involved bringing awareness to how my trauma dictated my thinking, feeling, doing, and the whole human experience, and then how unlearning and healing and releasing ways of being that ultimately don't serve me. And from that space, I was able to become more of what I wanted to be and use my truth rather than my trauma as a guiding light. Sorry, I was trying to unmute myself there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so many people think that it's, you know, if you have OCD or if you've gone through an eating disorder, right, or a trauma, you have this like scarlet letter on you and you're burned forever and that you'll never be able to recover or never be able to live a fulfilling life. And especially in the absence of a village, in the absence of a steady household where you were able to just like be in one spot and commit to your adjustment. Um, it's just really incredible that you were able to go through all those things. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we could go on forever about, you know, the one and done situation. And, you know, what I like is that you're saying that you're confident in that, right? Like, it's not just that you're kind of living and getting by or, 
yeah, we made this decision and I'm sorting through it right now and I'm accepting it. It's like, no, I'm at a place of confidence and I really, really enjoy that. Uh, what also comes to mind is you're practicing this concept of radical acceptance, right? Like, you know, we don't have to love what it is that we've been through. We don't have to love the fact that we are a one and done family and, and maybe we do, um, but it is what it is, right? Like you said, you in another life, maybe had things been different and you didn't have the traumatic upbringing or if you had a village, things would be different, but it's not that way. Um, and I think so many people, regardless of what it is that they're struggling with, we can all benefit from a little dose of radical acceptance. Like we can continue to beat ourselves up with further suffering about why things are the way that they are, how things could be different. But at the end of the day, we have to practice that radical acceptance of like, that is my history. Like I did have a, a traumatic upbringing, no amount of self deprecation or amount of wishing it any other way is going to make it any other way. We have to radically accept what has happened to us. And like you said, it's small little choices, right? And I'm sure that wasn't kind of an overnight thing, as you've mentioned, but it's small little choices here and there. It's the choice to continue advocating for yourself, even though the mental health and medical healthcare system is a complete train wreck, right? It's, yes. it's, it's all these little choices day in and day out. It's, and you know, when you see other people out there living your life, you can either kind of take that and, you know, get really down about your own situation, or you can jump into problem solving mode, right? Like what, what can I do? Like what's within my own little square foot range of within my control and what am I able and willing to do about that? Yes. And a lot of the eating disorder tendencies were about wanting to gain control and wanting to gain control in an, in a, appropriate way. And I have focused my efforts on things that I can control that are positive, such as my spirituality, my breath, how I interact with others, you know, joyfully moving my body. Yes, I can control what I eat, but I can use that as a form of self-love instead of self-harm. Yeah, absolutely. And so many people, it, it is a really commonly comorbid, these two conditions, right? Eating disorder is an OCD. And I love that you mentioned control because it does tend to be that overlapping feature, right? That, you know, these individuals, maybe it's because of their upbringing, there was a lot of chaos that you mentioned and, and you were primed to want control because you never really had it and never really saw what that was like. And I see that so often in people who struggle with the comorbid nature of eating disorders and OCD that it does tend to kind of seesaw until they try to tackle the issue that is their uh, discomfort not being totally in control. Yes. And there was a lot of shame surrounding eating disorders in the early 2000s. Um, for the most part, they were viewed as a form of vanity or people who suffered with them were thought to be stubborn. I, I don't even think that the DSM recognized disorders outside of anorexia and bulimia. So that shows how far we've come because now, you know, we have awareness of binge eating disorder, orthorexia, um, but people thought that eating disorders must be caused by bullying or seeing a supermodel on TV or a boy not liking me. And yeah, I'm sure that didn't help, but the eating disorder was only a symptom related to unaddressed trauma I was processing. Um, you know, I even had a family member of mine come to the hospital and say to me, I see children on other floors de deteriorating from cancer. 
while you are here because you choose to be. So that was the outlook back then. And some professionals considered anorexia to be on the OCD spectrum because of the compulsive behaviors, while others considered it to fall on the spectrum of addiction because of its addictive behaviors. Um, I mean, regardless, it's truth that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental disorder and is further complicated by its its chronic nature. Um, So inpatient treatment at that time was focused on giving up control and educating on me on what I was doing to my body. Uh, there were certainly helpful parts of this, but overall body image wasn't the root cause of my problems. And my life, you know, felt so out of control that losing even more control felt a bit chaotic. So the education of, you know, this is what starvation does to your body. It, it certainly scared me, but I just wanted to yell at them like, I know this isn't good for my body, but why can't I stop doing it? You know, I didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'd like to suffer with an eating disorder today. So just learning about its negative effects wasn't going to cure it. And um, it wasn't until I got with a proper team to do that exposure and response prevention that I was able to cure those compulsions. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to um, you know, get back into the, the right treatment and manage everything. And yeah, obviously it's contributed so wonderfully to you being able to not just survive, but also thrive. Um, and so many, despite so many really difficult things contributing to your upbringing. So, um, I'm really curious to hear what your answers are to our questions that we usually wrap up with. So I would love to know what other advice you would give to other moms out there, other parents, um, in particular, or in addition, you know, any advice that you'd have for those parents who aren't as bold as you and I are, you know, um, that they're not able to, you know, make those repeated phone calls, they may, you know, have that feeling or that kind of invalidation at a doctor's appointment, and then kind of like turn inward and think, okay, fine, like, maybe I am just being a baby, like, I just need to suck it up. What advice would you have regarding advocating for yourself more and or any other advice that you would give to other new moms or parents out there? I want all parents to know, especially pandemic parents, that even in the most unprecedented times, your mental health needs to be a top priority. And with everything that's happened, you know, I'm still, I'm still doing the thought work of the past years. I'm still grieving experiences that I feel I was robbed of having with having a baby in the height of a pandemic, but I don't have to have completely mastered all of this and compartmentalized all of this to be able to just talk about it. Um, Times are changing. You know, we don't have to have the perfect parenting facade that people had to unfortunately endure for decades. So please, if you're, if you feel your experiences, you know, good and bad could resonate even with just one person talk about it, you'd be surprised how many people can relate and and go forth with zero guilt, putting your mental health first. Just like I said, I had to demand help. And if you have to approach it with that attitude, then more power to you. For sure. I, um, I, I'm getting the sense that you just like me, right? Like, uh, 
I, I protect my mental health very fiercely. Like I, yes. even more so than I did in the beginning of this, uh, I've talked about this so many times on the podcast, but when I opened up to my OBGYN about my issues and I'm a well-respected in our small little community as an OCD professional, like my OBGYN knew from the beginning that I was knowledgeable about OCD and anxiety that I had contributed to peer-reviewed literature articles that I'm, I speak at national conferences and that I, I knew what I was talking about. Right. Um, and so when I went after my six-week appointment and I just couldn't take it anymore, in tears, I broke down and I said that this is what I'm struggling with. These are the images that I'm having. I can't sleep. I'm up at night checking my son to make sure I didn't hurt him. And she said something, a lot of invalidating things, but something along the lines of, um, you just need to, you know, be a little bit more easy on yourself when it comes to your expectations of being a mom. Like if he needs a pacifier, give him a pacifier. Oh gosh. I was so enraged and I'll never forget that because it's that moment where like I, I was, I got louder, right? I got louder right. and I said, absolutely not. Like I'm telling you what I'm struggling with gave her more examples and the information that I knew that would be impactful, like that I was wanting to hurt myself and that I was becoming hopeless. And then she started to get it. But moms who don't have this background and who aren't as naturally like are personally bold as you and I are, like they're maybe a little bit more shy or a little bit more timid. They maybe draw inwards. Like they could have just left, right? They could right. have left and walked out of there thinking that this is my life now. Like I guess I just got to give him the pacifier and it's, it's a, oh my gosh, it could be a disaster. And I think about that all the time, um, that, and I wasn't, a a young mom by any means, you know, I had my son in my late twenties. So even what if I would have been my 22 year old self seeking help, where would I have been now? If I would have viewed, um, my OBGYN as more of an authority figure that I just need to listen to, like what, I want to speak out to help all those moms that maybe are not as educated, that don't have the voice, that are a little bit younger, that don't feel like they have the right to be sitting in front of a doctor saying, I demand help because they do. Yeah. And sometimes you have to demand it. I mean, that's always my advice to people listening and to other new moms, like be ready to potentially demand that someone take you seriously because uh, you know, like you have mentioned in your podcast, and especially during COVID, but certainly anytime as well, like as soon as we are moms, as soon as we have the baby, we're no longer a priority, right? Um, even though we absolutely 100% obviously should be. So I'm curious, not just when you were advocating for yourself, but really at any point in the process, even from what it was way before motherhood and you were struggling with anorexia and OCD and all the trauma, if there was ever a time where you could go back and you would just want to say something to yourself, um, what would that point be? And what, what is it that you would say? You know, people ask me, what, what do you wish you would have known before having a baby? <laughs> and I wish I would have known that there was going to be a freaking pandemic. Um, I was prepared as most compulsive people are for every facet of parenthood, but the pandemic really came out of left field. So going back, if I could talk to pregnant Mallory or even, you know, childhood Mallory, and I knew there wasn't a way to prevent um, the trauma that I was going to endure in childhood or the pandemic, I would tell her, 
again, your mental health needs to be treated as a top priority because I believe standing firm in that belief would have saved me months or years of unnecessary suffering. Um, you know, facing trauma, setting boundaries, un unraveling years of distress and breaking cycles and choosing to actively heal is very difficult, but they will manifest themselves in every corner of your life and ultimately flood into your child's life as well if you don't face them. 100%. So knowing everything that it is that you've gone through, how you are still here, able to have a fulfilling life, love your life, be confident in the decisions that you're making and all of that great stuff. Why do you think it's important to go through hard things? Yeah. So kind of those things I mentioned with the facing trauma, setting boundaries, all of those are under the bubble of hard things. And let me tell you, you know, if we do not tackle those demons, so to speak, head on, um, like I said, they will affect other people in your life. If, if nobody answers, if you don't answer for them, somebody else will. I believe that generational trauma flows through families until someone is strong enough to face it and destroy it. I hope that I am that person, that chosen person in my family that is strong enough to face it. And where ultimately my son will be given the gift of not having to recover from his childhood. And that gift will then be given to his children if he chooses to have any and so forth. So that's important. Why that's why it's important to do the hard work is to give that gift going forward. I love that. And honestly, I, I have thought about it a little bit myself, uh, obviously having only one child as well, but I never, I guess, really thought about the ongoing benefits of that, even with his yes. children, if he decides to have children. Right. Um, and yeah, what a gift we can give. Um, I know so many times one and done parents are, you know, should, you know, uh, you know, all, all these fear-based decisions, right. I, I right. struggle with that too. Like, should I have another baby? Because what if something happens to Eli? And then it's like, well, do I really want to have a baby just as like a safety precaution? <laughs> like, yes. No. Um, and that's what I said. I don't have a backup husband. So, <laughs> right. Exactly. And you know, all this stuff about, you know, they have to have a sibling. Well, is that really going to be our child's sole purpose? Like that we brought them into the world because we really need Eli to have a sibling. Like it just never felt right. Right. Um, and so I feel like you and I have both kind of gotten to the point now, like the dust is settled. We've made our decisions and it feels really good to kind of be in that place of peace and that place of confidence. So I'm so glad that you're there sister. Yeah. And I, I have to tell you the, you know, when my husband was wheeled out after his vasectomy, which let me tell you, men don't know nothing about anything below the belt. Like what women go through, we are warriors. And this vasectomy was like, I mean, he was in and out within like 15 minutes. It was so easy. But when I kept worrying that I was going to feel this sense of regret or something was going to happen and through my therapy, I have learned that my mind is not that powerful. Like Mallory, you're not that powerful. You cannot control the world with your thoughts. You're not, you know, up here just making things happen with your brain. Um, but when we got home and we settled in for the day, I felt happy. I felt like this is so exciting. You know, our family is complete. 
we know what we want. Like it's just us, the little triangle, and we can go forth being at peace with that. And it was just, it felt similar to when I brought my son home and I was like, this is good and all is well. So I've had no regrets and, and I don't plan on having any. So that's amazing. Well, we'll see when my husband's uh, ready to get a vasectomy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How to make that phone call. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I'm like you, I kind of envision all this regret. And I think sometimes waiting to feel 100% sure that I'm not going to have any regrets and that's never going to happen. Right. Like right. we're never going to feel 100% sure even going into that. It's kind of this like, oh, well, what if I have those regrets? But there's this potential that like you, I, I love the saying, like you get your answers from doing, not by thinking. Like I'm yes. never going to think my way out of this dilemma. Eventually we have to make a decision one way or the other. And, you know, for the past four years, very consistently, we felt very confidently that we do not want another one. Eventually something's going to come to show for it. And yeah, we're, we're going down that alley too. And I hope that everyone else's experience, if they can relate to us at all, I hope that they also have that experience of like, oh my gosh, this is actually so much more fitting of a decision than I ever anticipated it to be. Like there's this piece on the other side of it that I didn't even anticipate being there. So thank you for kind of teasing us with that a little bit. I never, I never thought that that would be possible, but that feels really good to think about. And it's important to remember that we can't prescribe the perfect family to anybody, you know, everybody's family looks different. If, if you feel that five children, you know, are what you want. And I see parents with those out there and I'm like, gosh, I don't know how they're doing it, but if it works for them, that's amazing. That's not your story. If the perfect amount for you is one, then that's just as okay as the two, three, four, five that other parents are choosing. The amount of children you have, if you have them at all, is such a personal decision and you need to own the correct amount for you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. There's so much good information packed in this little teeny tiny 50 minute podcast. So Mallory, uh, why don't you just give people, I know you dropped your Instagram um, so people can kind of follow along with you and hear more about your story and how everything kind of progresses for you. So why don't you just remind them really quickly where they can find you? Yes. So my Instagram is Mallory like calorie. So that's M-A-L-L-O-R-Y-L-I-K-E-C-A-L-O-R-I-E. And you can also email me at Mallory like calorie at gmail.com. Um, again, I've got like three followers, so they're going to see me post about this, <laughs> but I'm excited to be here. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.